Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Questions shape all of the poems on today's episode. Some of these questions are addressed, others pile up and are left unanswered. As we will hear, posing questions brings to the surface anxieties for the speakers and for us, the audience, as we listen in and wonder how might we answer these questions. I'll note now one of the questions we'll hear in a later poem. Who hangs a birdhouse from a sapling? Who hangs a birdhouse from a sapling? Well, who does? How would you answer that? Stay tuned. Christina Rossetti, British Victorian poet, posed eight questions and followed each one with an answer in her poem, Uphill. Each anxiety-ridden question unfolds, typically, over ten syllables. The answers, meant to reassure, tend to be shorter, curt, implying there's no room for disagreement. And they vary from six to ten syllables. This is Christina Rossetti's Uphill. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place? A roof for when the slow dark hours begin. May not the darkness hide it from my face? You cannot miss that in. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night? Those who have gone before. Then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak? Of labor you shall find the sum. Will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yea, beds for all who come. That's Christina Rossetti's Uphill, written in 1858. The person providing answers is very sure of herself when the uncertain individual who travels at night worries that she might not find a resting place in the dark, she's told, have no doubts. You cannot miss that in. Six syllables that will tolerate no disagreement. Rossetti's motif of a journey and a safe arrival seems to apply to so many life situations where we move into uncharted territories, whether geographical or emotional or something else. We could take the poem literally. Any of my listeners who are walkers in Astoria might empathize with the questioner in the poem's opening lines. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. 
But we also may presume the person posing questions is terminally ill, and the one answering wants to provide reassurance that there is nothing to fear when leaving this world. That reassurance is provided in secular terms, not biblical terms, or any kind of religiously charged language. For example, the poem says, Shall I find comfort, travel sore and weak? Of labor you shall find the sum. The comfort or reward to be achieved equals the labor or effort made on the journey. We reap what we sow, as the Bible declares. The love you take is equal to the love you make, as the Beatles sang. All these statements, Rossetti's, the Bible's, the Beatles, assert a balance exists in how we choose to live. Here's a contemporary poem whose questions also may allow us to imagine what happens when we leave this world. Phyllis Levin's Unsolicited Survey. Though unlike Rossetti, Levin provides no answers, only questions. You might agree that makes for a stronger, more profound poem, because really, why should anyone speak in a reassuring way about an experience totally foreign to all of us? The word solicit means to ask. The poem is titled Unsolicited Survey. Nobody has requested these questions before. They're not official in any way, perhaps not even capable of being answered. We are allowed to wonder who is being asked these questions. A person who has left this world as we know it? This is Phyllis Levin's unsolicited survey. Have you been there? If so, can you describe the shape of the shadows? When you entered, did anyone greet you? Did the moss hug your foot or a jay screech in your ear? Were you afraid you would not get back? Did they ring a bell? How many times and what did it sound like? Did a horse bow its head by the side of a road? Did a single feather lie at the clearing? Did a green wave cascade into a grove? Did the flavor of light infect your sleep? Did a toad leap from the dust onto a twig? Did deer turn in terror as you passed? Did a doe lick your hand and find you wanting? Did you behold a flower that cannot fade? Was the sky so empty that you fell upward? Did the needles of a pine tickle your nose? Did you sniff the ghost of the cedars of Lebanon? Did you follow a petal blown to the edge of the sea? Did you wake with a sheet twisted around your throat? Did you call out? 
did you kneel at a blade of grass or at the mound of an anthill? Did you ask for a way in or a way out? Did a bow sway imperceptibly? Did you rest your hand on the shoulder of a god? Did you open a piece of fruit and offer a portion of it to the sun? How long did it take to finish? And were you satisfied? Did a fly sip some water from a stone? Did you touch the haze on a plum, its blue cloud? Did you rub its skin until it lost its bloom? Did the day burn in a crow's eye? Were the stars so clear another heaven appeared behind them? Did you hear the wind consoling the leaves? Did you look inside the cap of a mushroom and part the curtain of disbelief? That's Phyllis Levin's poem, Unsolicited Survey. We may feel submerged in a wave of questions, leaving us no opportunity to come up for air to offer a response or two. That's no criticism. Phyllis Levin's many questions may seem unanswerable, though certainly worth asking. Levin's poem was published in her volume Mercury in 2001 and then reprinted in 2010 in the anthology The Art of Losing, Poems of Grief and Healing. The editor of The Art of Losing, Kevin Young, categorized the poems he selected according to six movements in the grieving process, beginning with reckoning and regret and ending with redemption. Levin's unsolicited survey was placed under redemption. Each line is a question. There are 34 questions. If we presume the speaker poses these questions to a recently deceased loved one, it may be the speaker wants assurance that the passage out of life blends the familiar with the unfamiliar. For example, the familiar. Did you kneel at a blade of grass or at the mound of an anthill? And, for example, the unfamiliar. Familiar. Was the sky so empty that you fell upward? Fortunately, Phyllis Levin allows her reader to imagine the answers. Terence Hayes, a contemporary black poet from the U.S., wrote 70 poems that all share the same title, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. That's also the title of the volume in which these 70 sonnets appear. Some of the poems name genuine assassins, James Earl Ray, Dylan Roof, 
the men who murdered Emmett Till. The poem I selected does not name any assassin. It seems to express a lighter mood. I will refer to the poem I'm going to read by its opening line. I'm not sure how to hold my face when I dance. Three questions are posed in the first five lines, followed by three declarative sentences. Then the speaker repeats himself and closes the sonnet with a two-word question. I'll note, the sonnet refers to Jimi Hendrix. Does he require an introduction? The blues-inspired guitarist, as you probably know, died in 1970. Passing reference in the poem is made to Thelonious Monk's Jazz Orchestra and to Miles Davis when his trumpet playing was backed by string arrangements. This is Terence Hayes' poem from American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. I'm not sure how to hold my face when I dance, in an expression of determination or euphoria. And how should I look at my partner, in her eyes or at her body? Should I mirror the rhythm of her hips, or should I take the lead? I hear Jimi Hendrix was also unsure in dance, despite being beautiful and especially attuned. Most black men know this about him. He understood the rhythm of a delta farmer on guitar in a juke joint circa 1933, as well as the rhythm of your standard Negro bohemian on guitar in a New York apartment amid daydreams of jumping through windows, ballads of footwork, monk orchestras, miles with strings, whatever. I'm just saying, I don't know how to hold myself when I dance. Do you? That's Terence Hayes from American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. The poet does not call attention to his rhymes, but they are present. The rhythm of her hips, I hear Jimi Hendrix, most black men know this. Her hips, Hendrix, know this. Self-consciously, Terence Hayes' speaker poses questions about how he appears to others. He seeks consolation in thinking of Jimi Hendrix's uncertainty about how to dance. He says, I hear Jimi Hendrix was also unsure in dance, despite being beautiful and especially attuned. Jimi Hendrix was a self-conscious dancer? Really? I admit I'm uncertain what to say about the longest sentence in this sonnet. He understood the rhythm of a delta farmer on guitar in a juke 
joint circa 1933, as well as the rhythm of your standard Negro Bohemian on guitar in a New York apartment amid daydreams of jumping through windows, ballads of footwork, monk orchestras, miles with strings. Okay. Hendrix encapsulates a wide range of African-American music. He was attuned. Yet despite this, and despite being beautiful, he was unsure on the dance floor. I don't doubt I'm missing some depth to this sentence, to this poem overall. Yes, the speaker feels self-conscious, on display on the dance floor. When we read this poem in the context of the other sonnets in this same volume, we may presume he feels ill at ease in a political culture hostile to his interests. The poem was published in 2017. But I presume there's more depth here than I'm uncovering. That's all right. We don't need to feel like every poem is a code to be cracked, that every line must be understood in order to appreciate the poem. At the poem's closure, the speaker repeats himself and then addresses his audience. I'm just saying, I don't know how to hold myself when I dance. Do you? Well, now that you asked, no. What does that say about me? Let's move backwards to the exact center of the 20th century, Langston Hughes' 1951 volume, Montage of a Dream Deferred, specifically his oft-quoted poem, Harlem. I will read this poem built upon six questions, and then I'll offer some brief commentary on it. This is Langston Hughes' Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Langston Hughes, Harlem. The first question, what happens to a dream deferred, the poem's overriding question, gets answered with five more questions, none of them consoling. We may presume the dream refers to racial justice, to an end to Jim Crow restrictions and brutalities. Racial justice deferred is like dried up grapes, festering sores, spoiled meat, and a constant burden on bodies and minds. West Indians and Puerto Ricans moved into Harlem in large numbers in the decades before Hughes wrote this poem. That would include Harry Belafonte, 
singer, actor, political activist. Belafonte was born to Jamaican immigrants in Depression-era Harlem. As one spot-on commentator noted, though readers might not immediately perceive what connects a sore, a syrupy sweet, and a heavy load, the poem's broader Caribbean context makes the deep historical connections between sugar, slavery, and labor impossible to ignore. Let's hear this short, powerful poem one more time. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Langston Hughes, Harlem. Now, to take us up to the present, consider the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court case which prevented women from determining full control over their reproductive choices. In oral arguments the Supreme Court conducted in 2021, Amy Coney Barrett implied that forcing a woman to carry an unwanted fetus to term was not a hardship. Every state operates with safe haven laws that allow the birth mother to give the baby up for adoption. For example, to leave the newborn at the hospital or drop the newborn off at the local fire station. Voila! Problem solved, in Barrett's simplified view. A birth mother who recognizes she's not ready to be a parent should be honored for her honesty and desire to do what she thinks is best for the child. She must live with the hope that her child will be welcomed by generous open-hearted individuals eager to adopt. But also, let's reflect on the emotional concerns of the birth mother who gives her child up for adoption. Carrie Etter's poem, A Birth Mother's Catechism, was published in her 2014 volume, Imagined Sons. Though published well before the Dobbs decision, Carrietter's poem powerfully suggests what Supreme Court Justice Barrett failed to consider. This is Carrietter's A Birth Mother's Catechism. How did you let him go? With black ink and legalese. How did you let him go? It'd be another year before I could vote. How did you let him go? With altruism, tears, 
and self-loathing. How did you let him go? A nurse brought pills for drying up breast milk. How did you let him go? Who hangs a birdhouse from a sapling? Carrie Etter informs us in her poem, A Birth Mother's Catechism, mothers who give up their offspring for adoption do not act flippantly. They are likely to carry the emotional weight of their action for the rest of their lives, even when they know the decision was the right one. Her poem repeats the same question five times and offers five different answers. Each answer adds to, rather than contradicts, the previous answers. She concludes by answering the question with another question that, better than any assertion could, profoundly acknowledges the birth mother's lack of preparedness. Let's hear it once more. This is Carrie Edder's A Birth Mother's Catechism. How did you let him go? With black ink and legalese. How did you let him go? It'd be another year before I could vote. How did you let him go? With altruism, tears, and self-loathing. How did you let him go? A nurse brought pills for drying up breast milk. How did you let him go? Who hangs a birdhouse from a sapling? Altruism, tears, and self-loathing. That's a combustible, emotional cocktail Carrie Etter serves up in her poem, A Birth Mother's Catechism. Today's episode is titled, Posing Questions. The poems I read by Christina Rossetti, Phyllis Levin, Terence Hayes, Langston Hughes, and Carrie Etter are all constructed upon questions. Do you have any questions? You may reach me at feedback at kmun.org. Feedback at kmun.org. Also, you may listen to this show any time of the day or night. Go online to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and then click again on Poems for Company. There you will find earlier episodes and a list of all the poems read on the show. Our theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun, available on his CD, Live from Montana, at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Poems for Company.